Welcome to Maker Chats. My name is Oliver Barry and I'll be your host. The making community is growing rapidly and I want to spread the word. So every Thursday I'll be chatting with an interesting maker and innovator. Be sure to join us on YouTube, Facebook and Spotify. If you'd like to be part of the conversation, then join the Maker Chats Facebook group. I really look forward to bringing you interesting and innovative content from makers of all ages. If you'd like to get the show sent straight to your inbox, subscribe with the link in the description below. If you are a maker and you want to chat with us, don't hesitate. I'd love to hear about your project or your business and interview you. Contact us on the link in the description. Now let's get on with today's chat. Unfortunately, I couldn't be on this awesome chat this week, but I'll be back soon. So enjoy. Good day, everyone, and welcome to Maker Chats. Um, today we are talking to Steve Gray. Steve is the, um, from uh, Makerspace Durban. How are you, Steve? Yeah, I'm great, thanks. How are you doing well? Yeah, interesting times we're living in, right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely the time for innovators to rise up. That's for sure. And, there's, and, and it seems to me that um, innovators have been rising up. If I look at, you know, there's all kinds of projects going on everywhere in turn, and, and makers are really making a difference. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's been, a, it's been a great opportunity for people who've owned 3D printers and haven't had very much useful things to do with them to finally point them at a real problem. Yeah, all of a sudden they are on demand, right? So, Steve, I think that brings me to my first question is making and makers. If you for our listeners, how do you define that? So, uh, people often, you know, the, the definition obviously of, of making is just the act of making something. So, it's quite broad. Um, for me, what differentiates the maker movement and makers as we, as we define it now is more about the process of making in a collaborative way or making in in a generous and shared way so i would define what your grandfather did in his garage as tinkering like he was making things and you know my grandpa was making things but they weren't able to share what they were doing you know especially the processes they might have shared the end product but what's new is with with the internet unlocking this ability for people to to share their techniques and really take people with them uh, on the journey of, of making and then kind of the generous attitude so the difference between manufacturing and making you know what both are both again they make products so manufacturing makes products always has but manufacturing almost as say it has no soul but it's it doesn't have any uh, goals to share and, gen and be generous and, and kind of collaborate and have fun it's it's just a means to an end so that's where you know making is a broad word that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of people but for me what it means is it means when i talk about makers and in, in the context of this discussion i'm talking about people who make things and aren't scared to share those things and are not worried about people copying them they're generous people who just want to benefit others um and uh and, and it's the approach that kind of makes the difference for me it's almost like the, the software industry did with open source software, bringing uh, your, your, your um, programmers at home in, um, in collaboration with your big software companies and, and yeah. basically sharing that type of knowledge. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think a lot of that, that approach, um, you know, precipitated kind of an Arduino. Um, and that was an open source hardware. So it was kind of the first time that hardware took the approach of software to say, let's make something that anyone can copy and make however they want. That was, to the, that was the little Raspberry Pi, right? Uh, no, the Arduino Foundation. I think they were 2004. Oh, 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 I see, I see, okay. Yeah, so, so Arduino started with the Italian consortium of, I think, three universities, if I'm, if I'm correct, I mean, as far as I, as I know about it. Is, they kind of got together and said, the electrical engineering students every year would make make products you know and they would spend 90 percent of the time building their their breadboard and they could only iterate and add that real innovation in that last 10 percent by then they were out of time so mm -hmm. they said well if we can just give everyone a starting block where it's a it's a multi-use prototyping platform then they can from day one start to actually make solutions and that was the the, the idea between behind the arduino and then that obviously sparked this whole it was very much a fuel for this maker kind of fire that um, 
you know, people were able to see the, the practical benefit of sharing how rapidly they could spread ideas and, and share value and, and generosity with the world. Um, and also the first time that it was really successfully um, done in a, on hardware as well as, you know, because software had been since Linux, you know, there'd been some really mm. good successful projects. Uh, so that's kind of one of the starting points. And then obviously Arduino was the brain to the, to the open source 3D printers and the rep wraps. So that's kind of where I see it all starting. And that's why I sort of say that it started with that idea of sharing, of sharing the work and, and of sharing ideas. Um, if Arduino had never published their designs and, their, and made their software open source, it would never have taken off. We wouldn't have had the rep wrap in the same way that we have it now. Wouldn't have been, you know, um, it was an example for everyone that there's, there's actually a benefit in, um, you can be successful even when you give things away. Um, and then we obviously had some, some wins and losses, you know, we had like the maker bot, which was kind of a, a bit of an upset in terms of the maker movement where they took a lot of what was deemed as open source work and then closed it and, and kind of extracted value. But in the end, I think they, as a business, um, haven't really endured so, so, so much. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's obviously things to, to, to look at that are wins and losses in the, in the greater scheme. Um, but for me, it's been, it's been a very interesting period in history where um, people have found that you can actually succeed by being generous, you know? Um, I think this is, this is, how, this is the, the world we live in now. But, but also it sounds to me like, um, you know, it's not just, like you say, it's not just somebody tinkering in the garage or, or even, say, um, somebody knitting or, or doing a craft. Um, there has to be some type of um, technology element to it, right? Is that right? Um, no, I think, before, yeah, so, so the definition of technology is the application of, uh, of human knowledge um, in, in a productive way. So it's, it's the application of scientific knowledge in a, in a productive way. So, you know, making a fire is a technology. There's a technology behind fire, making a bra, whatever. So it doesn't have to be, when we use the word technology, we, we normally mean synonymous with high tech being electronics, but uh, I think it applies just as much to any technology, which is, again, it's a scientific knowledge. We know, someone knows how to do something. So for example, we do some knife making in our space and uh, we got into that, you know, like everybody, well, I'm say everybody does, but a lot of people do, which is watching YouTube videos and, and um, you know, learning from, by doing and, and learning from watching others. So it would be very hard to get into a lot of these crafts and a lot of these, these, these um, trades um, in the traditional way, you know, becoming an apprentice. And it's a big commitment. And as someone who does many things, I couldn't commit to becoming an apprentice to learn how to make knives. But I can very easily go watch some videos and then I can leverage technology to laser cut some blanks and make it a very easy and rapid process. So I think the knitting example um, would... would would kind of become making if the person knitting shares that the breakthroughs that they're making and their secret sauce, you know, like if they really good at knitting and they found some new techniques and then they're going to publish those techniques for others to use, then that becomes part of the make make a movement. But I think the difference is if someone's just doing it on their own without sharing it and without collaborating, um, yes, they may be making a product, but they're not, they're not part of this bigger picture where um, it's kind of a, uh, you know the ethos and the, and the and the spirit behind the maker movement is that there's more there's more together than there is a part. So the 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 sum of the parts is greater than the or the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Whether it's uh, high tech or low tech, it's more the approach. So again, if a lady was having knitting lessons and inviting people around to her house and teaching them how how to do it, that would be part of the maker movement. We would like you know love to advertise something like that and get people involved because they would get to learn a new skill. Um, so and then again, it's obviously more exciting and more applicable when you can, you can find um, new solutions. So if you are just doing projects and you're just doing tutorials that have been done many times before, then that's more educational and, and experiential. So the maker movement goes that one step further by like sort of building on the shoulders of giants. So you would take a project that has been done and you would try and find a way to make it a little bit better. And that would be kind of celebrated and, and encouraged. So again, you know, people have been teaching people for a long time how to do things, but the fact that someone can be a lot more free to experiment and um, there's, a, there's a real encouragement um, to, to push boundaries and try new things, that's part again of the DNA of, of the whole maker movement. 
Well, that's awesome. It, so it sounds very exciting. So tell us a bit about yourself and how did you become involved with the Riker movement? Yeah, so I, I was involved in manufacturing for uh, it's what I studied and I, I was employed by a big company and I, I was successful in that, in that uh, kind of corporate sphere. But um, I did feel a little bit independent and, and independently minded and it didn't quite fit with me, the kind of traditional corporate path. Um, and so in the end, I felt I needed to do something different. I went into business with my brother-in-law and we started a financial service company. Um, which also was quite successful and we, we you know, we, as two young guys, we did quite, quite phenomenally well um, and, and had a, like a fairly large group of people working for us. But I ended up doing a lot of work that wasn't really my forte and wasn't really my, you know, my passion. And um, as, any big, as any business grows, you know, the demands start to um, dictate your, your activities. So I guess I ended up for, for two or three years doing a lot of work that's, just wasn't recharging me emotionally. And, um, and then there were one or two uh, like kind of upsets that happened where there were fallouts with people and, and um, you know, like the stuff that happens um, that just takes an emotional toll on you um, when you invest in people and they kind of let you down or, or, or kind of um, like, say, you know, don't, don't honor the trust you've given them and those kind of things. And that it all just kind of made me reassess what I was doing. And um, so I took a, I took a break, I resigned from, from all my businesses that I was involved in. And um, I kind of rebooted in 2013. And, and then I just needed to figure out like, what, what was I going to do with my, with my life, you know, and my career. I felt quite a bit of pressure that I needed to um, figure, figure that out, you know, being, being kind of early middle-aged. Um, and so in that journey of discovery and of, of, of looking at what my, my strengths were, um, I personally have always been uh, energized by, by unlocking the potential of others. So I love working with people and seeing how I can, um, I can help them achieve their, their potential and often can see things in people they don't see in themselves. And then I also really enjoy working in a creative environment without any constraints and without, with some freedom, you know, and to, to be creative. And then I've also always loved technology. So since I was young, you know, like um, taking, to, taking apart radio control cars and playing with the motors. And, um, you know, my dad got us a computer when, when we were quite young and learning how to, you know, uh, use DOS, MS-DOS, and then how to, you know, crack computer game passwords so you could play games with your friends. And, um, and always loving the latest gadgets, you know. So I love buying new gadgets whenever there's new things come out. Um, so all those three things were things that always energize me and then I thought so how can these three things live in this in the same place and then how can I make a living out of that and I ended up kind of thinking well maybe the creating a maker space place where people could do all those things would would be unlocking their potential would be working with technology and would be working creatively and that was when basically I started the maker space um, and that's yeah that's basically been the journey since then is figuring out then how to make that um, how to make a living while living and making Interesting. So your microspace in Durban, is that part of a larger organization or um, group or, or what's the history? How did that start? And how does it, how does it all fit together? Yeah, um, it's, it is. Um, you know, as with all things, well, most things make it, it's quite loose and, and quite um, informal. You know, there aren't, there aren't many formal structures, but we, there is a group of us that's, um, that kind of got together in South Africa and said, let's, let's create a collective. So we have an association amongst most of the independent maker spaces. Um, and we try, whenever we hear of people, we try to pull them in and, and try and get on the same page because we've all gone through this journey of, um, you know, it's a very difficult thing to, to, to be able to find a way to make this um, sustainable. Uh, so unfortunately um, it, it costs quite a lot of time and effort and, and personal investment. And so it's better to try and collaborate and teach each other you know, and, and kind of share ideas and share successes and, and failures so we don't have to, um, you know, see people fail. And our, the Maker Collective, um, you know, is a network of about uh, 14 different uh, spaces and then quite a few different people in South Africa. And um, basically all around the central idea of people trying to help other people make things. 
Oh, that's awesome. So you guys are also um, sharing business ideas and, and business um, um, model ideas um, out of yeah. the experience of what worked and didn't work. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, very much, yeah. Um, and then things like in this crisis, you know, we were able to very quickly collaborate and, and kind of share work and opportunities. Um, and there's, yeah, there's a general, like the rising tide lifts all boats, you know. So if we if we collectively can and um, you know, put our hands up and show that the makers have something positive to add to South Africa, then it's, it helps all of us. Yeah, I see on your website, you had a goal of creating 200 makerspaces in South Africa. And you just said that you've got about 14 people collectively or 14 spaces working together. Um, um, can you tell us a little bit more about those spaces and what the goals are for going forward? Or is this, yeah, just, yeah. Is this just growth that happens organically? Yeah, so, so I think, you know, one of the things that um, I've realized about this, this, this kind of industry or this maker movement is that everybody's quite independent. And so you, don't, you can't have a one size fits all and you can't have, you know, a one brand that's, that sort of can control everything. You need to allow quite a lot of freedom for people to do what they believe is, is the thing they want to do because there's so much, they've put so much into it and the type of people that, that, can, that can survive um, are very independent. They've got a lot of their own ideas, and um, there's no point in trying to force everyone to to have a monoculture. We all do exactly the same thing. So the maker movement, the, the, the maker collective in South Africa is is really. I mean, it's more than anything. It's like a WhatsApp group. We've we've had one or two meetings. Um, we kind of we all sort of were at the Maker Fair Africa. I think it was 2014. Well, when I say all, I mean most of us. That's where we first met each mm -hmm. other, and and then we. You know, continue to to build that relationship. So I did. This take was a, the one in Cape Town in 2014. Am I right? No, in Cape Town was 2016. 2016. Uh, okay. I was in Joburg. It was, oh, was in Joburg. Okay. All right. Yeah. And yeah, basically, um, my my thinking is that if there could be 200 makerspaces in South Africa, that would be an awesome capacity for for South Africans. You know, an awesome. Thing for them to be able to leverage um, because it means probably that you could have most people within a two-hour commute of a makerspace and if we can network the makerspaces and work together and share equipment and designs it just means that you know we can have a real impact on the economy so um, the goal of 200 spaces it doesn't have to be 200 spaces that I start or that has any particular brand it's just um, that there are 200 places where the public can go and can can access this technology and and, and the basic basic ethos again which is the generosity and the, the learning and the sharing and the encouragement um, so yeah the, the guys that we've we work with um, all have their own most of them have started their own spaces I've been involved in some of them to help them start up and, and we continue to discuss things with each other um, but I think uh, on it's not a franchise model where you know one person makes all the the, the calls or one person sets the branding or anything it's it's just really a quite a loose collaborative network and like i said as, as often as we find out about people wanting to start things like this we try to add them and try to get them involved and network them and see if we can collaborate so we don't see each other as competitors um because of the nature of the work we do there's so much need for it and um that's that there's not it's not really an issue of competition it's, it's an issue of us all helping each other to be recognized and, and getting kind of bigger support from governments and from corporates and that sort of thing. Yeah, those spaces, uh, I'll just run through the ones I can think of or pan. And apologies if I'm missing, um, because it's, uh, yeah. It, but, but um, you know, in Cape Town, there's, there's Felix who runs Maker Station, Felix and Miners. Um, there's there's uh, Craig um, who started a Workspace in Hart Bay, who's in the process of kind of re-looking at how to help the Hart Bay community. Um, I think work, workspaces has changed quite a bit over time. Um, there's, there's also um, in, in Joburg, well, okay, let me try to get up the coast. So in Port Elizabeth, there's um, guys uh, in PEE, Jan, he, he kind of heads up something called VAC, um, Jan and, and, and Jocks. Um, and then, um, John Noble has has sort of a makerspace type setup in Nasna, and then we up in Durban the makerspace, and then 
in Joburg, in the Gauteng region, there's, there's quite a few active spaces. So there's Workspace with uh, Henry Levine in Fontainebleau, and there's um, the sort of original maker space in South Africa was, was House for Hack in Centurion, and that's still going strong. Um, there's also um, the binary space, which meets in the Val. Um, uh, there's a Maker Labs group. They, they mostly meet up at, at Henry's uh, workspace. Um, there's uh, our, our Maker's Village with Inarini, um, which Tanya um, uh, set up um, at the Railways Cafe. They've got a really nice, um, great place for people to go spend a Friday afternoon. Um, and yeah, then I think that's, that's it. Uh, oh, then there's obviously the Tishmalachong makerspace, the TMG, which used to be the Diz. And um, those guys are doing quite good work. And I'm kind of on their, I'd say official board, but, but on, on the kind of founders list and help them, we kind of collaborate often. What's really interesting yeah, to me is, 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 your, is the, the, the um, demographics of these spaces. I would have thought that it just shows you that, that you would get um, some of them centered around your universities, you know. Um, is that not something that, this is not something that, that attract universities? Yeah, it's, it's, I think it depends on where in the world you are. There is the University uh, UJ and University of Pretoria both have makerspaces. Um, um, but the difference there is that you've got people who's, who, who are employees running them. Mm. Um, you know, they're employed by the university. So they've got a different approach and a different directive. Um, but other spaces are, are independently owned and they, they are not, a makerspace is not a commercial, uh, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a profitable endeavor. So anyone who's doing it is doing it out of the love of it and um, is also investing more than they're getting out of it. And because of that, there's a, there's a kind of kindred approach and, and there's very much, um, uh, like there's a lot of camaraderie and there's a lot of, um, you know, the approach is, is very much based on people trying to, to help others. With the institutional maker spaces, um, they, they often, don't have the same heart and the same uh, level of commitment because it's just somebody's day job, you know. Um, yeah. Someone who's done it, you know, put their own money, hard blood, sweat, and tears into something is a lot less likely to let it die than someone who was just hired as a technician to fix a 3D printer. So I think the difference is it's such a hard thing to get right and to succeed in, to build a community around, that it really requires a huge investment of time and energy. And you can't really put a price on that or you can't really, you know, you can't really pay enough for that to happen um, unless you, you're an American organization or something, which, you know, they've, and overseas in Europe, there are some spaces where they, they've successfully partnered with universities. So the original maker spaces were the Fab Labs, which was um, a project from MIT, and that was very much associated with universities. But then that, that kind of failed in South Africa because, again, like I'm saying, it didn't have the heart, you know, it wasn't yeah. people, people involved in the project didn't have the, the same experience and the same drive and the same passion and didn't have the same vested interest to make it succeed. So they, they arrived at work and they were like, well, there's no one here, you know, so they'll just go back to their desk job. Where if you ask any independent person who's running a makespace today, out there hustling, trying, working three or four jobs, you know, trying to make this thing work. Um, and that's kind of, um, that's, that's generally how it goes. Now, obviously you get some, some exceptions to the rules and, in recent years, the maker movement has been highlighted, and, and so you've had all the different approaches, um, and and you've got investment coming in from outside. I think governments looked at maker spaces as a solution. They they bring them in with TVET colleges. They're trying to they're really trying to make it work, um, and time will tell whether those things are, are are successful or not. But for me, what's important about a maker space is is the community. So, you know, that's the secret ingredient. You have to get right. You have to build a community and an organization, it's a lot harder to build a community because, you know, like students are there to, to pass their exams. That's all they care about. Mm -hmm. um, so they're in and they're out, you know, when they graduate, they're gone. It's hard to have continuity. There's a lot of reasons why it doesn't, it doesn't um, easily work in, a, in an institution. Um, and then again, it's that independent mindset. You know, the people who really want to do this are very independently minded. They don't want to be told what to do by someone else. 
you know, they might be have a certain idea and the next day they change that idea. And that just doesn't fit with, with bigger organizations. So um, I think we're all trying to figure out like how to leverage this fourth industrial revolution and how, how to get people productive. And we're trying it in different ways. And the maker movement fits kind of a very ragtag independent group of people who um, have a certain approach, you know, very much a, a hack, hacker approach. Um, and so how successful that's going to be when it's institutionalized, time will tell. I think the other thing is, if I just think about it, you know, a, a space like this and also the collaboration means that there's a lot of intellectual property that's being created. And um, if it's all open sourced, obviously it's, it's never monetized. And um, yeah. so, so what happens if, if, if you know, um, have you had instances where people really started off and um, created something incredible, um, you know, that, that, um, uh, uh, when you when you IP and then made you know became a startup or whatever um, are, are there any success stories you can tell us or what usually happens to the IP? So the approach that we often take in and that we we very clear about from the beginning is that it is an open source movement. It's an open open source kind of hearted thing. So even if there isn't a an official common you know commons license, Creative Commons license, there there's an expectation that there will be transfer of knowledge and skills. So um, what we have is certain people who really want to use equipment and want it to be secret. They don't really um, kind of take, you know, they don't really stick to the, to the maker spaces. Mm. So they come in with an agenda and they want to do something cheaper than, than, than what the, the other options are out there and more commercial ways of making things. Um, but they want, so they want to sort of, borrow from the maker movement the, 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 the low cost, but they're not willing to pay back the kind of attribution and the shared um, RP. And so that doesn't really, it's like oil and water. They don't really mix together. So we get people coming to us and saying, they've got a project, you know, can we help them with it? And then we say, yeah, sure, we can help anyone. And then they say, okay, can you sign this NDA? And <laughs> we say, no, we can't sign an NDA because, you know, what we don't, we don't want to tie ourselves in knots. Like we, that's not why we're here. You don't pay, you're not paying us enough to sign NDAs. And then the decision becomes, okay, well, can I trust these people? Are they going to try and compete with me? And what I often say to people is, okay, well, look at our, look at our history. You know, what, what do we do? For six years, we've been training people. We focused on unlocking innovation. We, we mentoring people, we training them, we, we upskilling them. Have we made any products? You know, do we compete? Are we manufacturers? No, we're not. So do you really think we're going to take your idea and manufacture it, you know, on a mass scale that's going to put you out of business? And if you'd believe that, then, then really like, let's not even bother because we're starting on the wrong foot. Mm. And then um, if, you know, people have a, a commercial idea, it, it doesn't really live in a makerspace all that long. It starts to very soon grow out of a makerspace, either through its success or through its failure. It doesn't normally just stay in that mid in between like kind of low volume level um, because makers ambitions are not entirely commercial. You know, if you're making knives, you might make 10 knives a month and you're happy to sell them for a thousand rand and get some extra pocket money. You don't want to go into mass production necessarily. And if you do, you're not going to do it in a makerspace. You're going to buy a factory, you're going to set up, you're going to run, you know. Um, or if you go out of business, then, you, then you're not going to do anything. So the kind of commercial ventures um, are, they need to figure out how they, how they work in that um, RP environment. And I often tell people that we're in a post-RP environment, in a post-RP time. So we not information used to be the thing that that was create values. So if you knew the secret recipe, you were the only one who knew it. You then could make the money. But now, in in the amount of content that gets created every day, um, you know, it, more more content is created. Um, in, in one day now than, than was created in the, in the first 2000 years, you know, that in one day, the more data gets added. Um, so I was so looking so at that YouTube, at the, at the YouTube statistics the other day, they add more YouTube videos in, 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 I think in 30 days than the whole um, television industry added in like 30 in their old existence. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so there's so much information out there that it's very, if you're trying to compete on information, you're saying we've got the information that no one else has in the information age, you're, you're looking, you're barking up the wrong tree. 
So that's the way we often start the conversation. Um, and so, you know, real RP, something that really took years to develop, like research and, and development, where you've put years of research and, 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 and money into finding out something that no one else knows, that is obviously still a patent and something you would want to own. Mm. But none of us are spending years doing research. You know, we're taking something that, that everybody's borrowed from each other. You take a 3D printer and you add a spindle and it becomes a CNC machine. That's not rocket science. You haven't really, it's nothing no one else can just look at and copy. So to try and compete on RP, it just becomes you're tying yourself in knots, you know. And then again, if you've got a good idea, China's going to copy you in six months and they're going to do it at a massive scale and they're going to do it cheaper than you. So you better have more. They're going to do it. They're going to steal your IP anyway. So. Yeah, exactly. So you need to do it better and you need to do it with, with a more uh, authentic approach that resonates with people and that people want to support you. And, um, you know, you've got to have build followers through, through all the work you've been doing. And that's, it's, it's an in interesting time. Like your success is not just about the product itself. You can't separate out the brand and, and the product. Um, so, yeah, for us, the RP question is, is quite, um, it's a resonating, uh, you know, clear, no, no RP protection environment. So if that's your concern, it's buyer beware. You need to protect your own RP. Um, but again, like, I think a lot of people just need to be schooled on, on the relevance of RP. I think people who still think in that mindset, they haven't been at it long enough. They haven't, you know, they, they in such infancy, infancy in, their, in their innovation journey that they still think that the idea is worth money. What they will find out in time is that the idea is worth very little because ideas are free and they happen every day. What's important, what's valuable is the execution and execution can't be copied execution can only be done and it takes five years to make something really succeed so you know by the time you're succeeding at something you you've got a five-year head start in some ways to your competitors um you know obviously it's not a, it's not a rule that that is always true because you see what facebook does when snapchat brings out a new filter and then they copy and um it's sort of a uh you know but that's a feature that's not really an essence um like necessarily an innovation so yeah i think the rp environment um people should understand that that it, there is a different approach in the makerspace and there are still labs and there are still consultants you can hire who will sign ndas and do the work for you and you just need to pay the, the price then if you want it to be secret you need to have a big big bank account to to do it that way if you're like the average person who has an idea you know what, why don't you just take a chance, release your idea into the world, and if you're successful, fantastic. But if you're not, at least you won't die with any regrets. You know, the worst thing ever is you have this idea and you sit on it for 10 years and you tell all your mates around the brand, and 10 years later, you see it pops up and someone else has done it and they're succeeding and, everyone, and you just feel like, why didn't I do that? You know, so I think the encouragement is the tools of uh, what's, what's available now um, to us, these the rapid prototyping tools, it's so cheap, so accessible, it'll take much less time and energy than it would have taken 10 and 20 years ago. So why not just try, you know, give it a go. And you don't have, it's not a winner takes all. There's so many um, opportunities that you don't have to be the best. You don't have to be the fastest. You don't have to be the biggest. You can find a niche where you do your unique thing in your unique way, resonates with a certain group of people, and you can, you can make a living out of that. So the other question is, what is, is, it, is enough enough? And that's the other, when we have this discussion with, with businesses, I often ask that question, you know, how much is enough? So out of this idea, what do you really want? Do you want to make a living, a decent living? That should be enough for you. You know, if you want to make mega profits, then what's the cost of mega profits? You know, that's going to be, mm. it's going to be ugly. That's where the world is in such a bad state because of that type of thinking. So if you're happy just to make a decent living, you probably need a thousand. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a movement called a thousand true fans. Which is if you have a thousand followers on whatever product, service, whatever thing you, you offer the world, that's enough to be successful and to make a living, decent living. That's actually enough to make quite a quite a quite a large fortune in most cases. Oh well it's enough, it's a it's a base yeah. that you can then you, sustain you can, yourself you can, off. You know? Absolutely. Just a quick interruption, but I do need to remind you that we are currently in a very difficult time. The South African government I set up a fund where businesses and individuals can donate to support our country through this crisis. Go to the website now and add your small donation. www.solidaritifund.co.za 
please join us all in the fight against COVID-19. That is at www.solidarityfund.co.za. Now, let's get on with the show. Steve, this is a very interesting. So tell me a little bit more of this Global Innovation Challenge in 2018 that you took part in. What was that about? Yeah, so we, we've been uh, incubating people and working with people since 2013, as I said. We kind of kicked off officially in 2014, and, and it was it's hard yards. It's been an uphill battle. Um, and we're always looking for, for opportunities and support. And one of the things that came up was the Google Global Innovation Challenge. And what they asked is, um, you know, who's doing work that's innovative and that has social impact? Um, and tell us what your project is or give us a project and, and we'll decide if we're going to fund it. And one of our members actually approached us and said, hey, here's this thing, let's do it. You know, and, and we, had, um, we had been incubating uh, youngsters from, um, from the Mangasutu University of Technology. they from very, very poor backgrounds and they, they do a course called uh, Mechatronics, which is um, kind of like robotics. It's a combination between electronic and, and mechanical. Um, and they do it in a technical level, so it's not super, um, super skilled, but these guys then need a, a one-year practical in order to graduate, and they weren't able to get that one-year practical. So there was like 50, 60 guys and girls who had, who had finished their courses, passed their, their exams, been paid for by the state, and weren't able to graduate. So we just, just bumped into guys and started to try to help them get that experience. And what we did is we then packaged that as, a, as an actual project for Google to pay for. And we, we, we incubated 15 young people for a year and we took them through everything we know about the technologies, you know, with all the different disruptive technologies, um, the 3D printing, the laser cutting, the business development stuff, you know, websites, software, um, just the way that we, we approach, um, you know, RP and ideas and all these things, innovation. Um, and yeah, we, we were fortunate enough. There were, um, over 1,500 applicants in South Africa for the funding. And there were 12, 12 of us that won $150,000 or $125,000. So we, we were able to, to win that at the end of 2018. And then we used that in 2019 to, to, to run that program, which is called Project Quenza. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a real privilege. What are your membership options for um, the Makerspace? Uh, yeah, so we basically have a, a online application form and online payments form and it's a, a hundred grand a month to subscribe and then when you subscribe you can book your your first hour of training which will train you on the laser cutting and then um from then on you would just pay as you use uh, you get half an hour free a, a month um, as part of the benefits of the membership and then you can just pay as you use. So we try to price each piece of equipment um, so that it allows people to work out transparently what, what the cost would be. So like 25 Rand an hour for 3D printing. Um, I think it was like 200 an hour for the CNC or 250 an hour, 250 an hour for laser cutting. And then if there's any particular things, you know, if it's a bit of hand tools and maybe use the If you're just using something and no one else is using it and it's not it's not head or anything then generally there's no charge um but if you say you have some sort of project where you want to come and do woodwork for the day or you want to um do welding or something then we also take into account the disruption that you might be causing and then arrange with you when you want to do it what that would cost um so and then we also sometimes would rent the venue out for events to certain people so we encourage people to if they want to have their own events their own maker events or any events, they can rent the venue either with or without equipment. So they could rent the venue with equipment and with technicians, or they could just rent the venue like for a photo shoot or whatever event. Generally, the barrier is is people are a bit intimidated, you know, they don't know where to start and they don't look stupid. So it's hard for them to get started. Generally, we we'll ask them to bring a project they actually want to do and do that with them. So they end up going away with some value going, oh, that wasn't so hard. I think I can redo that install the software and, and get them set up. So in terms of success stories, I think we've had two or three people start their own laser cutting businesses um, from wow. Makerspace. Often they, they kind of get a little bit embarrassed maybe because they've come and they've used our machines and they've learned how to do everything. We've taught them everything and they've started doing a product 
they started, you know, getting some volumes and then we're starting to see them more often and they rent the machine fairly often, which is great income for us. But, and then suddenly they like, have bought a machine, you know, and they don't, they're not always sure, like, how do they, do, when do they tell us, you know, and it's a little bit of an awkward conversation, but we try to be as, as um, you know, upfront as possible and say, look, we not, we don't want to be a laser cutting business. We don't want to, um, you know, we do charge for laser cutting as a commercial service. It's one of the ways we make, we make revenue, but it's not our passion. So we're not trying to win and be the, you know, a, mono, a non- monopoly. There's more than enough work out there for everyone. So yeah, we, we celebrate those small businesses when they do reach those milestones and they've, they've now, they've got enough confidence to buy their own machine and start their own laser cutting business. Generally, our machines might be a little bit bigger than theirs or we've got more volume or we might have material they don't have. And when they get stuck, they can often just come back to us and, and either borrow the machine or their machine's down for maintenance or, you know, they, they, they've got a bigger job and they need help. You know, so there's, there's a good um, kind of working relationship. Um, and then we've had like a lot of people start like leather crafting businesses and, you know, um, one of our interns um, from the previous years, he started, um, we, we have this project where we, where we do make a kit. So we make little kits for our, for our workshops. One of the workshops we do are leather, leather wallets, hand stitching leather wallets. And we have a price point for that kit. I think it's um, 450 for the kits. And if we do, if we're doing um, like a workshop, we generally, you know, we'll, we'll make the kits for everyone and we'll teach them how to sew them. And then we'll customize those wallets. And so one of the our interns kind of, we always encourage them to try and start businesses. And he, he started, you know, based on the inspiration he got from us for the wallets, he started his own wallet design and he started selling those on, on Twitter. And um, yeah, he, he ended up be selling like 50 a month um, at that oh. kind of price point, which is fantastic. I mean, young guy who was unemployed, um, you know, it's fantastic. He's employing some of his friends. And um, so we've had some, some, yeah, some great successes. And then, We've recently started a bit of an incubator program to help people um, who have businesses um, to try and, um, you know, improve their businesses and help them to have more, uh, you know, success, accelerate their businesses. Um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of been some of the benefits of a make space, some of the success, of, it's about community building. So just having people cross-pollinating ideas and getting to know each other and fr- base of friendships and bringing together people from different demographics and you know, very young, young, poor people from, from disadvantaged backgrounds with maybe older, experienced, wealthy people like working together and, and really um, on an equal basis, you know, because sometimes the young guys got the skills the old guy needs or sometimes the old guys can mentor the young guy um, and everything in between. So, you know, we've had a, a lady who's a, who's a retired um, farmer, like 70 odd years old, um drives down from the midlands to come you know build um play, play doll houses it's quite amazing what people can do when they when they don't start believing that they, they can't you know um, so we we kind of believe we can teach anyone to to use these tools and uh, so if people are just open-minded enough to start that journey we can they're often very surprised with what they can do that's amazing. So um it sounds to me also that you know when people really get involved they get passionate so they probably hang around at that makerspace 24-7 and start living there. So <laughs> so what do you, um, do, when somebody comes there, I mean, they're paying 100 rand a month and, and to use the equipment, but also what about, I mean, if you're working on a project, you, you might have some um, uh, stuff to store. Do you get other uh, other small space to work in and uh, what are your hours? Yeah, it's, it's like I said, there's nothing set in stone. The makerspace itself is, I, I tell everyone who's interested in makerspaces, it's not a commercial endeavor. So. Um, no matter what you're going to charge or how you're going to do it, you're never going to make money out of a makerspace. So it's, it's a way of us, you know, doing a training program and training people. Um, we have formalized nonprofit company now with, mm-hmm. with the, the Google program and some of the other projects we do. So what we try to do is get a third party to pay us to train people. Uh, and the space becomes the environment that we co-inhabit. So we like to have external people. We like to have, different people coming into the space and using it because it brings different ideas and it brings a flavor and it brings an energy and creativity. So it's very much not about us trying to make money out of it or trying to help everyone, you know, make lots of sales and get lots of members. We want people who, who have the same ethos, who quite like that idea that they get value out of being in a community and sharing ideas. And so um, if those type of people come into our space and start working there and start asking and needing certain things, 
we'd probably accommodate them if, if they have the same heart, you know, if, if there's a benefit. At, at the same time, if we have someone who comes and starts to try and really take advantage of us and, and abuse the, the, the benefits, then we'll also probably ask them to leave. You know, we've, we've only actually had to, we've had like one hard conversation with a member before, and this is a, over five years of working where the person we felt had just taken a little bit of advantage and just said to them, look, we, you know, it, it's, you've used the, this amount of hours, but you haven't paid for it, you know, like, what's the plan? And, you know, they got very kind of uh, defensive and then, and then they didn't come back, which is, which is great. So, so we, we were happy because, the, the, you know, we don't follow up. We don't have the, the, the system and the makerspace doesn't make enough money to pay a manager to follow people up and say, you owe money, you owe money. We just completely operate in trust. So we say, fill in the form, give us your details, and then you pay as you use. We're not even going to necessarily um, measure that, but, but we, we do have an online booking system, so we can run a report if we need to. But essentially, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a, on a trust system. You know? So if you come in and use a laser for half an hour, then you pay for half an hour. If you use it for an hour, pay for an hour. We're not going to necessarily stand there with a stopwatch. Um, yeah. Because, again, if we had to try and take that approach, it would become... Um, unsustainable we can't pay for someone to do all that, that management it has to be self-managed it's just a, it's a place people can come and work um, if they're going to sit there all day and use the internet up and use use up you know one twentieth of the space then they should at the end of the month pay one twentieth of the overhead and that would only be fair you know and mm -hmm. so our values as a makerspace which which are clearly published is that we expect people to leave a little bit to leave things a little bit better than they found it or leave it better than they found it and that generally applies to life as well, you know, and, and, yeah. and our footprints on the earth leave better than you found them. And then in terms of um, the, the values, um, it's give a little bit more than you take. So if you imagine having a thousand members and every single member just makes, makes a point to leave just a little bit more value than what they take out of it. So if, if, I, do a, if I do 100 rand of laser cutting, but I felt, I felt like that 100 rand was worth 200 rand to me, I've now gained 100 rand of value. How do I find a way to pay 101 rand back, you know, not in rand, but maybe in by giving, dropping off an old tool or by introducing someone to the space or by, you know, sending an introductory email to, to a funder or just by positively supporting what we're doing and, and, you know, maybe being willing to come and help out at, a, at an event, you know, for free. So there are a lot of ways people can give, but it's just that, that attitude of thinking to yourself, how can I like not extract, you know, how can I like actually give? And if you imagine if everybody in the majority adds a little bit each time, then you have a, then you have a surplus. So that's kind of our, our ethos. And that's, that's the thing we try to make clear from the beginning. And, and based on that, we're very much a values-based organization. So we don't have rules and regulations. We say that's, how we be, that's what we believe. Those are the kind of people we are. If you're one of those people, join us. It'll be easy and, and it'll be um, easy to manage. Um, and so far, that's worked for us. Um, like I said, the journey has been interesting in terms of how do you make that successful and how do you make that sustainable? And it's ended up with us realizing that the people who get value out of the space and who get value out of learning these new skills often can't pay for that themselves. So someone else has to step in and, and cover that cost. And we've had, you know, people donating, I had someone from Scotland, like somehow come across us and email me and say, you know, give us your Swift account details. We want to pay for a membership for a person. You, know, you choose we don't know who they are but we just want we we like what you're doing so those are kind of things that when wow. you have those the, those values of like let's let's collaborate let's help people um people also then trust you a little bit more than you know maybe in a, a, a traditional company that you, you wouldn't just donate money to them and say hey do what you want with this um <laughs> yeah and and it also is yeah it also it's it's really challenging because um You've got, to, you've got to be careful that you don't end up working all day um, doing great work that no one can pay for because then your family is going to suffer. So you've got to balance. And again, that's why I say most makers, makerspace founders and, and people that are running these organizations are working three or four jobs. You've got your makerspace job, which is basically doesn't pay you anything. If you're lucky, it covers its own costs of its hard costs, its rent and its overheads. But normally you're even putting a little bit into the rent doesn't pay you a single rand for the hours you put in most of the, most of the time. Then you'll like have an events company where you're doing events for corporates where you're going to make a, um, you know, 
activations and you've got to coordinate all of that so you might make a bit of money with that project or that business then you've got your laser cutting business and you've got your projects which people are going to come to you with some random idea and they want you to make a mold for this widget that they think is going to change the world and you've got to like you know manage that and then um sometimes you've even got to like like craig and Town, you know go be tour, a, a tour guide operator or um, like minus in Cape Town, you, gotta, you know, do events, rigging and, and, and builds, um, fabricates, uh, uh, venting, you know, sculptures and, and all sorts of things. You've got um, the guys in, in Joburg who, who are also doing those, those alternative side hustles trying to, you know, like I said, live a, live a making and make a living, you know. Amazing. So um, uh, talking about... Um, uh, teaching and, and learning, you also have an academy. So what do you provide in the form of education? Yeah, I think that's, that academy is the ethos of what became the Quenza program, which is the, the one-year internship. Mm -hmm. um, we, had, we found that internships are the best way to, uh, to, to impart knowledge because of the duration and, um, and the in-depth working relationship. Um, we've, we've tried many different programs. We've tried, you know, a one day a week or a few hours a week, or we've tried um, a week long program. We've tried, you know, a, a few months, but just part time. And really the, the, the best results are when we have people for a long amount of time all the time so they can give all their attention. So we've actually partnered with some organizations that um, the, there's something called the YES program, which is the Youth Employment um, Services. Uh, or youth employment scheme, which essentially pays people um, that you hire or, or that they will pay your intern, essentially. So your intern will come and work for you. You will pay them. They will pay them. It's like three and a half thousand rand a month or something. And then you can, those people can then afford to get to, to the work, you know, sites and, um, and focus on the, on the, on the learning and the, and the, and the skills that they develop. So, Generally, that's, that's what's crucial in terms of really making an impact and getting people to understand and learn things. They need the amount of time, they need the care and the energy and focus, and, and they need the resources to still to get there. You know? if, you, if people can't buy food, then it's very hard for them to learn. So the Academy um, program is, is really, um, it, it works in that framework. So right now we've got the Quenza program, and then we've got this incubator or this accelerator that we're doing. And then we're also doing something that we've started recently in partnership with Veolia, um, Veolia Water Treatments and Veolia Group International, which is a which is a French um, a French multinational, um, where we it's called the Baobab of Durban, and the Baobab is around um, sustainable living and around responsible you know um, responsibility and, and sustainability. So we are focusing on projects around the green economy, uh, recycling. Um, sustainable manufacturing um, and, and skills development. So that program, um, we've got something called the Precious Plastic Studio, um, which is some open sourced machines that um, allow you to use recycled plastic to recycle plastic and turn them into useful items. And again, we've, we've got um, four people who've, who've been selected to, to be part of that program with us and they'll get the stipend and we'll teach them how to um, use that technology to, um, to build little business opportunities and, and manufacture items that are out of recycled goods that then have commercial value. So something they can make a little business that they can take forward um, and either renting machines from us or collaborating with, with, the, with the clients to, to, to buy the machine and lease it and those kind of things. Um, and so right now, like one of the examples is we're making the face shields um, using recycled plastic. Wow. Um, yeah. That's awesome. So, uh, well, with all of this, and in, in, I mean, the space is actually quite important for people. Now with the coronavirus, the space obviously has to be closed or can just be open for essential services. And um, with the corona, the whole thing, um, it's forcing everyone to rethink their business models. So do you have any new changes or ideas that you have? No. Yeah, so we obviously have these Zoom meetings now every every morning. Um, but the work we do is is, is predominantly hands-on work. 
um, for most of the people. So it is very challenging. Um, we're finding ourselves getting a little bit more into software. So we recently built something called COVID Connect, which is a matchmaking platform. And that's entirely software. So that's the first time we've ever really gone entirely software. Always the software stuff we've done is tied back to hardware. But again, like the opportunity um, in the sense that there's a problem and software can solve that problem um, and no one else seems to be doing it. So maybe we can do it. And that's how we ended up involved in that project. So I think we'll continue to, to build that capacity in terms of software. And then um, we, we, what we're trying to do is we're trying to identify COVID-19 opportunities. So there are a lot of organizations that are offering funding and support and competitions for COVID-19 solutions. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to get a list of all those competitions, all those opportunities, and then look at all our people and see how can we match make some projects that will fit those, um, those competitions and those opportunities, those grants and funds and whatever, and see where we can end up with, a, with an opportunity that can both benefit COVID-19 and can also be sustainable in the sense that it's got some financial um, component to it that's gonna pay for the person to work on it. Um, so that's one of the, the things we're doing. And then, as I said, over time, what we've realized is that our, our product is training, it's innovation training. And our market is people who need innovation training. But our clients is often a third party like Google or, or government or, or, or um, you know, funding agencies or whoever. Um, and so that's kind of how we, how we package what we do is we look for partners who've got resources and they want to make impact and they see um, in innovation training as a path that, they, that they've chosen to bring that impact. And then we look at a project where we can, we can execute on their behalf some training program um, in line with what they're trying to, um, trying to achieve. And then they pay us to do that. So that type of training, how much of that can be done, um, has to be done on site? Can that be done online? Is that, um, um, or parts of it online? Yeah, it can. Um, so, so generally what the guys would do is they'll take, maybe, let me give you an example. One of the companies that we incubating is doing um, innovative waste design. They're taking uh, old fabric, that's, that's waste fabric that's gonna get thrown away or, re or recycled. And, and they are then converting that into a product. So um, uh, the, the, the brand is called Eribo, it's, it's R-R-B-E-O and two young African guys who are really fashionable and they've got like a really creative sense about them. They've started this brand and they take old um, signage and old uh, offcuts from, from fabric and from leather and they put it all together and they make really funky bags. Um, and so that's an example where they, they've got their sewing machine, you know, at their house now and they can continue to, to make their products and then they will dial in for some some sort of mentoring and we'll talk a little bit about the strategy, the go-to-market strategy and how they're gonna distribute and um, what they should be doing, you know, building up stock at this point because they can't really sell anything, but when we get out of lockdown, they can start to sell the stock they've made. So, what? yeah, where we can, what we do is we take the, the, the machines that the guys would be using for their business or their idea or their innovation and so like most of the guys have taken a machine home, whether it's a 3D printer or CNC machine, or um, you know, we've got a ceramic printer that we built, we've got um, the precious plastic recycling equipment. Those are all in people's houses and they're basically able to do that work now remotely. Um, and, then, and then obviously whatever work we can get that is um, essential work. So like the COVID-19 screens, like protection screens or the, um, face shields or face masks or um, any of those kind of things um, those are done on sites and we bring in the guys and follow the you know the the kind of health and safety procedures to protect them awesome so um steve um yourself what is the most important thing that a thing that you've learned from your uh, maker journey i think probably just to let go a little bit um and, uh, and just enjoy the ride. Eh? So it's been, like I said, it's been six years and um, it's been, you know, often month to month, not knowing where, how you're gonna make it to, through the next month. And, uh, you know, that can, that can be too much for some people. It can break you, where you feel like you can't continue like that. Um, or it can, be, it can be quite a freeing thing, like where you, you're just sort of on an adventure. And, um, 
for me, it's been a, a journey of faith. Um, so like my personal oh. faith and, and just believing that there's, there's value in this project and the work I'm doing. Um, you know, building and helping people and, um, and also, you know, also learning um, to draw boundaries and, and, and make um, balance your, your commitments and try to uh, make it all work. It's, yeah, it's been a bit of a juggling act, um, but essentially um, you just need to be prepared for the first five years where you won't make enough to pay your bills. Um, <laughs> but if you can just, yeah, if you can just keep going long enough, um, you eventually you, reason, you find you find your place in the world, and you find people that will support you and that believe in you and that see value in the work you're doing. Whether that's knife making or making leather wallets or training people in innovation or you know building robots or websites or whatever it might be, um, you, there's a certain momentum that comes with just continuing to show up and do the work. Um, so you know, I'm I'm a workaholic, so my default is just to work harder, um, and and you know. My experience also taught me to start when the start of this journey that you can't actually, uh, you know, sustain sustain a, a lifestyle where you just work all the time. You have to you have to draw a line and you have to say, even if I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, like I have to go home now. I have to pack it up and I have to try and, and go home and rest and come back and try again tomorrow. Um, you know, there's times I think I probably work more all nighters than 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 most people. Um, Obviously, certain industries aside, there are some industries that work all nighters all the time. But um, I think you, if you expect to to be able to achieve uh, any sort of success without doing the hard work, then you then you you disqualify yourself before you even start. So you have to understand the work has to be done, and if if you're not going to do it, someone else is going to have to do it, and it's very unlikely they're going to do it for you. So yeah, I think my encouragement to people is. If you're starting out on, on an exciting journey, make sure that it's going to be worth it on the one hand. So if I had, if I had done all this work um, to, to make money or to, or to do something that was, that was shallow and didn't have much meaning, I would never have been able to sustain through the hard times. Collaborate, like wherever you can. There's so many other people that are doing similar things and that... Um, if you just have a conversation and you see where your, where your common interest is, you can find a way to work together and not see each other as competitors. There's so much opportunity to collaborate. And as South Africans, for some reason, we, we almost micro-compete. You know, we'll compete harder with the guy next door to us than the guy from China. And that's so wrong. You know, we need to collaborate and form an association and say, let's, let's get a, a sort of standard of, 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 of value, of, of, of quality, of pricing. You know, let's, let's together like, improve this, this industry that we represent. And, and let's, um, you know, not compete directly with each other and see each other as, a, as our primary competition. Let's see each other as co collaborators and then let's compete with, with external parties and other opportunities and other products. And I think if we, if we can get better at that as South Africans, we can go a lot further. If we can find a way to, you know, continue to collaborate and, and again, how much is enough, you know, enough is, what is enough for you? Um, if, if you just want to make a decent living, you know, do you need to, you know, cut your, your competition out by the knees, you know, it's not a winner takes all like life that we live. We don't have shareholders that are expecting, you know, year over year growth and that it's growth at all costs and profit at all costs. We, we have the privilege as, um, as individuals to set our own agendas and to, to do something that we can be proud of and that has meaning in the world. And, and we can also, you know, set a reasonable expectation and something that's achievable and we don't need to work unethically and, kill each other and the planet to achieve. Like you said, you know, go for that thousand true fans. Um, and, and it's going to take time, but, but at least it's going to be something that you'll be proud of and, and something that will continue to live, you know, beyond, um, beyond the monetary value of it. Absolutely. Steve, it's been a pleasure. How do people, if they want to, if they want to get hold of you guys and, or want to join like a space or want to make a donation, you know, how did they get hold of you? Yeah, uh, just the best thing is just to email me steve at themakerspace.co.za uh, or makerspace.co.za. I've also got that domain. So it's, yeah, just reach out and let's have a conversation. Um, so if anyone's interested or they're thinking of starting a makerspace or they want to build a makerspace for their organization, um, you know, whether it's their school or their library or their university or their business, 
um, we've got a lot of a lot of experience and, and a lot of hard yards that we can share with you and help you through some of that pain. Um, and uh, yeah, try and do it on your own. Thank you very, very much, Steve. It was a pleasure. Um, I appreciate your time. I will leave links to all of this um, in the description. Um, but um, yeah, thanks for taking, um, using your freedom day to chat to us. Yeah. I also feel like if anyone's listened to this whole podcast, they need to like get some sort of prize. So if anybody does email me and you, <laughs> and you say, in the title, you say full podcast, then, uh, then I'll give you a prize for sure. That's awesome. That's awesome. Let's see how many people actually listen to, uh, actually managed to listen to every word we spoke about. So that will be great. Thank <laughs> you, man. Thank you, Steve. Have a good Ciao. day. Thank you for supporting our show. If you'd like to get more exposure for your business, please have a look at our sponsorship options. Also, for a small donation of 100 Rand, we will list links to your business on our website. Thanks again for supporting Maker Chats. Please follow us on YouTube and on our social media channels. Find the details and the links in the description. Cheers until next time.